this readout, the EKG, but he showed it to me and he said, this, this is your problem. You are going to die if you don't get a pacemaker now. I felt more run down and weak afterwards than before I'd gotten it. They had a theory that, that the bottom lead had at some point been what they called fractured, where it was broken. Uh, they did a CT scan to try and determine exactly where the leads were placed so they knew how they were going to proceed with the surgery. During this procedure, they found something that nobody expected. There was a, a medical instrument called a guide wire. It's just a long piece of wire. Somewhere along the way, when they were doing my pacemaker surgery, this was broken off. The three foot length was left tangled up in my heart. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. When I connected with Tracy Wilson about her experience with medical error, and she told me that a surgeon had unknowingly left a piece of wire in her heart, I squirmed a wee bit at the thought of it and imagined a wire that was maybe an inch long. Then Tracy sent me a picture of her holding the wire, her arms outstretched on either side of her, gripping a wire that measured 42 inches in length. After I picked up my jaw off the floor, I knew I had to interview Tracy to find out how this happened and how she managed to survive what is called in the healthcare sector as a never event, as in it never should have happened. As it turns out, Tracy's medical error experience of having a long piece of wire accidentally left curled up in her heart was not a one-off event. As surgeons tried to remove a piece of the wire, they messed up some of her lymph nodes, giving Tracy nasty side effects. Then they tried to correct that error and triggered lymphedema, and now Tracy's legs have lymph fluid pooling in them, causing swelling, loss of mobility, and pain. As Tracy says, it has been a series of catastrophic events. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. 
premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you're in need of the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error or for living with chronic complex illness or LGBT issues or any of life's challenges, especially in this crazy COVID world, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Tracy Wilson and a word of warning that some folks may be disturbed by Tracy's experiences with the healthcare system. So Tracy, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, a small town called Sellersville. Everybody knew everybody. My family had been there for generations and I guess I had a pretty average childhood. I um, spent a little time in foster homes there were some complications, but for the most part, I was a pretty happy kid. Okay, so some disruption of your childhood. Yeah. How did your teenage years and early adulthood turn out? Yeah, high school, terrible. Never want to go back. I mean, it just, yeah. I had terrible buck teeth. I went through three years of braces to re- repair that. And uh, you know how kids are, they're horrible. But I was. I was pretty much of a loner. I was an honors art student, and that was pretty much the only thing I did. Oh, what sort of art? Almost anything. If I can create it, it's it's fair game. Uh, so you're gifted in that area. Yes. Uh, and then into your adulthood? I went to college. Um, I actually graduated seven years after I started an associate's degree. There were a few complications, but I kept going back and trying to finish. I was determined. My mother had raised three kids on welfare and I didn't want to fall into that trap. I wanted to make something with my life. I went to school for biological sciences and I had graduated from high school with an agriculture degree. So I was focused on trying to go into a program that would allow me to pursue animal husbandry. I did eventually go into one about three years after high school. Okay. And and today we're talking about your encounters with the healthcare system. Yes. Uh, So when when did the big story that we're here to talk about, when did that actually start? About... 2016, I had had some episodes of fainting. They weren't sure what was going on. My primary head looked into it. It was especially troubling because one of them occurred while I was driving. I felt it coming on and managed to get to the side of the road before I passed out. But it was, it was problematic. I had been hospitalized for five days for them for observation and At the end of that, my primary said, I'm sending you to a cardiologist to be evaluated for something called vasovagal syncope, which I'd never heard of before. He said, I want you to check him to check you out for that and for bradycardia. Okay. And what are those two things? 
bradycardia is an exceptionally slow heartbeat. Tend to drop your blood pressure quite a bit. Vasovagal syncope is a malfunction of the vagus nerve. I don't understand a lot of it myself, but the most common expressions of what happens that people would be familiar with are fainting at the sight of blood and narcolepsy. They're just triggers that cause a weird, a weird loss of consciousness. Okay, narcolepsy is when people just fall asleep at the mm -hmm. snap of a finger. Okay, so th the vagus nerve runs throughout the entire body. It's sort of a central nerve in our bodies. Yeah, it's a brain trigger that causes you to faint, and you have to find out what your trigger is. But not everybody has it. It's just the people that do. We have to figure out what our trigger is and deal with it. Okay, so he says he's going to send you these specialists? To this cardiologist to be evaluated. And that was Dr. Demidi. Before he could see me, I had been put into a halter monitor for evaluation. That's where they strap a, a mobile heart monitor onto you and you basically go about your daily life. And they download the um, information periodically and check it. Well, during this time period, I had been on a medication called Metaprolol, which is a heart med to control your heartbeat. It caused my heart to stop and things got really crazy. <laughs> I stopped for 2.3 seconds and um, I had no idea. I was asleep at the time, but the next day uh, we got some frantic phone calls and I wound up in the hospital. That was when I first encountered Dr. Demidi and he was pushing very hard to put a pacemaker in. One of his colleagues was under the impression that it was possible it was caused by the medication I was on and proposed that they take me off the med, keep me on monitoring in the hospital and see how I did, which is how it played out. It turned out that it was probably the medication. I don't deal well with heart meds. I've had complications from all of them as we went through this. Okay. Uh, so it must have been a bit of a relief to find out that it was the medication that was causing Very your heart to so. stop and then go off the medication and that sort of solved. Yes. I didn't want a pacemaker. I was terrified of what it represented, that my heart couldn't handle doing it by itself anymore. It, so the medication explains why your heart stopped. Did it also explain why you're having the fainting spells? No, we continued um, to do some heart tests, uh, stress tests, things like that, to try and narrow down what it was. But he was still very determined that it was the pacemaker. He seemed focused on that, that he needed to do a pacemaker, that there was a problem with my heart. Okay, and that was the solution. We spent a good year arguing about it because I really didn't want it. And then what happened? Uh, we came to a point where I was fitted with a heart monitor, an internal heart monitor right here that he, he installed. And it was supposed to monitor me at all times. It had a constant upload. And he was going to see if he could figure out from that what exactly was going on. About a week and a half in, I had an episode where I felt really, really tired. I mean, the whole day, the whole 
two hours in the day I was dragging, I called their office and said, I just did a download, please check it. I got an immediate phone call back, you have to get in here. When I went in, he showed me this, this readout, uh, the EKG, which I don't understand, you know, but he showed it to me and he said, this, this is your problem. You are going to die if you don't get a pacemaker now. Wow. Yeah. At the time I was having problems with my son and I just, I wasn't able to divide my attention to be able to fight him anymore. So we went ahead and scheduled to have a pacemaker installed. Okay. So how long did you have to wait for that operation? I think we had this conversation around the very end of May and the pacemaker was installed June 8th. And what year is that? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that was in 2017. Okay. Uh, so May and then the operation in June. And how did that go? I wasn't feeling any better. I had a close friend who had a pacemaker. He was on a second one. He'd worn the first one out after eight years. And I was comparing notes with him to see how I should have be progressing because I wasn't feeling any better. I felt more run down and weak afterwards than before I'd gotten it. And that didn't seem right because I had been told by everyone and by Dr. Demedi himself that I would feel so much better. Oh, so uh, in addition to having these fainting episodes, you were also low on energy, experiencing fatigue and other symptoms? I was very weak. All I wanted to do was sleep. Okay, so you're expecting a boost in quality of life and productivity when after the operation. Oh, I was. Um, it was sold to me that I would pretty much feel like I was running on an eight-cylinder engine after having six cylinders, you know? So comparing notes with your friend? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I was having some complications. I had a lot of chest pain. Uh, a few days after the surgery, I had started throwing up blood and went to the ER. That didn't seem right. <laughs> uh, I, I had infections at the surgical site a couple of times where I had drainage and that was problematic. They treated me for it. And through all this, Dr. Demidi did not seem concerned. He, he just kept, um, best word I can use is placating me. You know, he kept saying, you know, trying to manage me, trying to handle me. Okay. So then what happened in, in your journey? I finally reached a point where I was tired of feeling sick and tired. After about two and a half months, I'd had enough. I didn't feel he was listening anymore. And I asked for all of my medical records so I could go get a second opinion. And I went to my friend's doctor, an electrophysiologist. Uh, an electrophysiologist, other than a cardiologist, is a, an individual with additional training who specializes in these type of devices. Yes, that was Dr. Lobin, and he was at the University of Virginia. The first thing he told me, well, he told me two things when I got there, because I was in I was transferred by ambulance. I was in a lot of pain. I was having a great deal of pain on this side, on the right side, the lower right side. And 
he had transferred me up there from where I live, which was about a two and a half hour drive by ambulance. And when he evaluated me, he went through all this stack of paperwork I'd been given that was my medical records. And he said, I can tell you two things. One, you do not ever need this pacemaker because I can't find anything here that shows that you needed it. And two, I think you have vasophagal syncope. Okay, whoa, whoa. So he's saying that you needlessly had an operation and the implanting of a pacemaker. And the heart monitor, yes. And the heart monitor, when in fact you, you just had vasovagal syncope. Which is what I was supposed to be evaluated for in the first place, yes. So what were you thinking? Oh, I was, <laughs> I was angry. <laughs> I was going to use another word, but I was very angry. Um, he did a test on me to determine whether or not I had vasovagal syncope. It's called a tilt table test. It's like a really crazy carnival ride on a metal, a steel metal table. They strap you into it and they do all kinds of weird things to try and trick your brain into duplicating the same symptoms. And it turned out that I was positive for this. And so what does that mean that you're positive for that in relation to the, the idea that you had this surgery? Well, the tilt table test is definitive. Um, basically what happened was I got very dizzy and nearly threw up on the poor guy doing the test, which is a possible indica positive indication. Okay, so it sounds like the original doctor didn't do the proper test to find out if you had va vasovagal syncope. From what we can tell, there was nothing that showed he had run tests that would have evaluated that. Okay, so the second doctor gives you this information. What do you do with it? I was angry. I went looking for a lawyer because I felt like I had been put through this for no reason. Uh, the second doctor also was capable of removing all of the hardware and said it should come out. It was doing me no good. So we had set that up too. I took him on as my new cardiologist. Okay, so you set up uh, another operation to remove those two, uh, the pacemaker and the monitor? Heart monitor, yes. Okay. That was set for December, early December. We got to that point and I was sick that day. I had a bad sinus infection and they wouldn't touch me. <laughs> so we had to reschedule. We ended up rescheduling out to, I want to say it was March. And it ended up being a different doctor because Dr. Lobin stopped doing extractions, which was taking the tech out. So we ended up at University of Virginia. During the prep to, they, they had a theory that one of the leads was broken, that the bottom lead had at some point been what they called fractured, where it was broken and not working properly. And it was shocking me on its own, which was part of the reason I was in pain and kept feeling like a baby was kicking me. 
Okay, so all during this period of time while you're waiting to have these two devices removed, you're still experiencing various symptoms. Describe some of those. I was still having the fatigue. Um, I really had no energy and I had the the pain. It, it it was intermittent, but it felt like a raking pain, almost a shooting pain through my lower right side, just under the rib cage at the bottom. And so it must have been fairly painful if that if you had to take uh, be taken by an ambulance for an appointment. That particular day, yes, I was in a great deal of pain. I couldn't straighten up. I was screaming the whole way there. Mm, wow. Okay, so. You, another doctor is going to do the surgery. Yes. Um, but you're prepping for it. Right. We're prepping for it. They did what they call the CT scan, um, computed topography, I think. Okay. Uh, they did a CT scan to try and determine exactly where the leads were placed so they knew how they were going to proceed with the surgery. During this procedure, they found something that nobody expected. There was a, a medical instrument called a guide wire that's used to place the leads. It has a handle on it and has a very long, flexible, snaky piece to it. Uh, it's hard to describe. It's just a long piece of wire and it has an end that flexes when you turn the handle called a J-tip guide wire. Somewhere along the way when they were doing my pacemaker surgery, this was broken off and the three foot length was left tangled up in my heart from the pocket down to my side, just oh. short of my kidney. Okay, so when they're implanting pacemakers, they uh, use a guide wire to do the implantation. Yeah, so they can work their way down through the chambers of the heart and screw the leads into the heart wall. Okay, and it sounds like they went in through your abdomen? No, they actually went in through the pocket over here, the, the pacemaker po pocket, you can see the scar, and snaked it through my heart and what had happened, as best anybody can tell and explain to me, is that it broke off, this piece of wire, followed the blood flow, and tangled up. And the end of it lodged just short of my right kidney in the renal vein. It's actually poking partway through the vein. Okay, so the end of it is poking partway through your renal vein on the right side, and the other end of it is all curled up in your heart? Yeah, it threaded all through my heart. It looped through my tricuspid valve, and they, they found later it had done damage to that. It tore it up. That had to be repaired. And it was the bottom end was lodged just short of the pocket here. Okay, so they find this on the CT scan, and, and then yeah. what happens? Can I say all hell broke loose? <laughs> sure. <laughs> that's what happened. Um, my husband got the call first. I was in with anesthesiology, having a talk with them to prep for the 
for the surgery about a week later. And he got the call from our doctor and the doctor who was going to do the surgery. And they said, you're not going to believe this. And then they told him, when I saw him a few minutes later, he was white as a sheet. And he pulled me out of the meeting and said, I need to talk to you right now. And he told me, and it just, it didn't make sense. I mean, I literally thought I was being punked. I, I, it did not make sense to me. Punked as in somebody was playing an elaborate joke. It still does not really comprehend that somebody could have done this big a mistake and no one knew. Yes, I feel vindicated that, that there was a reason I was feeling so sick, but that was not anything I could have expected. Right. Okay. So your husband tells you this and it, it's a, a surreal sort of thing to have to hear and even conceptualize that it's in your body. Yes. Um, and then we started having a lot of very fast meetings with surgeons and with people who were going to explain to us what would happen next. Basically, I ended up having two surgeries at that point instead of one. They had one to remove the tech and then we had to have another one scheduled to remove the wire. The tech being the pacemaker and the heart the monitor. The pacemaker, yes. Okay. Um, and you mentioned uh, before that uh, your GP, when he saw the results? He was my primary care doctor. He had been notified. I had had some back pain in November while this whole thing was going on before we even knew about the wire officially, I had had some back pain and my neurologist had done x-rays to evaluate what was going on with my sciatica nerve. And radiologist for my neurologist had seen the wire and had the, like the lower end, just, just a fragment of it because of where their scans were and had notified him along with the scans that she sent that there was something there that it was, it looked like a wire and it needed to be evaluated right away. He did a few x-rays, uh, just very non-specific ones, came back and told me he believed that it was a defect on the lens of the x-ray machine, that there was no reason a wire should be there, so it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> So he was later proven wrong. <laughs> uh, so you have the operation to remove the pacemaker and the heart monitor. Uh, and then you had to have a subsequent surgery to actually remove the wire. Yes, that was a lot more complicated. They had tried to remove the wire to see if they could get it out while they were doing the pacemaker removal, but it was it had apparently rubbed into several places in my heart wall and healed into it. So it was going to have to be cut out. Okay, so how did that go? It was most of the day, the surgery. It was several doctors involved. Um, Dr. Tiemann at University of Virginia is the one who actually did the procedure. A very nice fellow. Um, scared me when I first met him because he's very, very young looking. <laughs> and I was afraid they'd given me Doogie Howser. <laughs> but he is very competent, very good surgeon. They were able to get most of it out and repair the 
tricuspid valve that was torn with what they call a ring angioplasty. It's basically a little plastic ring that they, they stitch it around to, to kind of shore it up so it'll hold because it was leaking very badly. Okay, so they had to put this plastic ring in because it was leaking badly and to sort of provide stability. So now you have this piece of plastic in your heart? Right. The way they did the procedure too was different. They did what they call a side entry thoracostomy, which a lot of words to explain. Instead of cutting me like this, they went in through my side, deflated my right lung and accessed my heart from the inside. Oh. Hmm. It was supposed to cut down on the risk of infection. And did it? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 well, yeah. Um, I did actually acquire an infection a few days after surgery. I think it was within a week and ended up being taken back into surgery and having to have everything cleaned out and we started over. Wow, okay. And because of that, I wound up on heavy duty antibiotics that kept me in the hospital for nearly two months. Wow, so you're yeah. quite ill. Yes. In addition to that, when they removed the wire, they were unable to get the bottom three inches. Every time they tried to mess with it, I started bleeding heavily. They were worried about catastrophic bleeding. So it was left in place. It was sutured into the wall of the vein and left there. Oh, so you've got this three inch piece of wire mm -hmm. permanently in your body now. Yes. And will that have future repercussions? We're still trying to determine that. Um, anytime you have metal embedded in the body, you're going to have some kind of particulate shedding of the component pieces. We are still trying to find out exactly what this is made of as far as being, it was never intended to be left in the body. Yeah, so the toxicity of it is much an unknown. Yes. And was there any of the wires still had to be left in your heart? No, they were able to get all of that out. They had to cut it out of the heart wall in several places, but they were able to get it out. Okay. Now, I've talked to other folks um, who've tried to have medical malpractice lawsuits. And uh, I know in California, there's a cap of $250,000 that legally that's the most any patient who's mm -hmm. been harmed can get. And for that reason, it's really hard for anybody in California to get a lawyer to take on their case. Uh, and you're in West Virginia? I'm in West Virginia. We also have the same cap as far as the lower cap. For more grievous injury cases, it's a half million cap, but you have to take into account, I mean, if they were able to win a lawsuit, they would still be having to pay their insurance company in some cases and having to pay their lawyer and expenses. Right. So uh, what did you choose to do? I ended up pursuing a lawsuit for a unnecessary procedure case and for the uh, instrument left in my heart. 
I'm not happy with the law. Uh, West Virginia, there are some problems, I really think. Um, the way they deal with things, the way they don't uh, allow the public to know anything about their doctor. I mean, there will be something that'll be entered that he had a malpractice suit. But as far as what the extent of the circumstances were, most people will not be given that information. Oh, so future patients or any public does not have easy access to his uh, quality of work or, or his harmful incidences. No. Um, the only thing that did actually occur that was helpful to that extent, and, and I had nothing to do with it, but I was pleased to see that it did happen because it helps this cause, is that someone had picked up on the documents we filed the case with originally and had posted it publicly. And what effect did that have? It's actually on his... Uh, Google page. If you Google him, you will find the lawsuit. Okay, so there's... So anyone who checks on him as a doctor would see that as well. Mm, okay, good old Google. Wow, there's a good thing okay. about it. Uh, so that's how you're feeling about the legality of it all. How are you feeling physically and emotionally? I still feel angry towards the state because there is almost nothing to prevent this from happening. There doesn't seem to be much to even address it as far as fixing the mistake. It's left to the hospital to investigate what went wrong and make the necessary steps to change it. There's no reporting agency other than the state board, which takes reports of all kinds, not just not just never events, which never events would be something like this. They, they don't have anything to address it. So they don't have the funding or the capacity to be looking into all of these medical errors, even the big ones like yours. Yeah, mine, um, I was told it's, it's like a catastrophic injury. And there is nothing to address that. There's nothing in the caps that makes it a fair settlement if you do manage to win a case and because your your medical would be so high and the expenses of bringing a case like this are so high most of the lawyers in the state will not take one but somebody took yours they did it, i he was the third one the first two turned me down Really, in spite of the evidence. I know when you showed me a picture, or you sent me a picture, initially when you told me that they found a wire in your heart, I was thinking something, you know, an inch or two long, but when you showed me that picture and your arms were outstretched. I actually have it next to me. It's actually longer than the three feet I thought it was. I just measured it, there it is. It's actually 42 inches long. 42. Two inches. That's three and a half feet. I don't know if I can back up far enough for you to see the whole thing. Yeah, your arms are pretty much outstretched as far as they'll go. And that was in your body. That is just... That was tangled through my heart and lodged next to my kidney, yes. Wow. 
I, I just, I can't understand how it could be missed. I mean, when you think about how things work in a procedure like that, it's not just the doctors. There's other people that are charged in the operating room with, with fail safes to make sure this doesn't happen. There are so many people that just did not accomplish their job that day for this to occur. Right, and it wasn't like you're in this entire journey, there was only the one really catastrophic experience. You had a number of medical errors throughout a the whole thing. A number of failures of performance, yeah. So how are you doing psychologically? I have a deep distrust of the medical profession. <laughs> I'm a real pain in the neck as a patient. I question everything now. Right, yeah. And so because you're not perfectly healthy now, you still have to interact with the medical system. And so it's sort of like having to go back to the traumatizer, the place of trauma. Yes. Um, I, I also have uh, side effects that I have to deal with. Um, I'll have yearly checkups to make sure the valve repair is, is still good. When they try to get that lower end of the, the wire, the piece that's still left in there, they went in through my groin. When they did that, they disrupted the lymph nodes that are in my groin and caused excessive lymph fluid leakage post-surgery. In order to control that, they came up with the plan to kill the lymph nodes that were leaking with surgical glue. I had asked at the time, will this cause any problems that, you know, will it, will it be any after effects? And no, no, don't worry about it. You have other lymph nodes and they'll take over the load. That didn't happen. I now have lymphedema in my right leg stage two and starting stage one in my left because the lymph fluid does not drain. So lymphedema is... Um, well, stage three, most people know as elephantitis. So all of this uh, fluid is pooling in your legs. And it causes excessive swelling, loss of mobility. Sounds like it could also be painful. It, it is on, at times very painful. And I've had one incident of cellulitis because of it, which is life-threatening. Wow, and uh, so this is just more medical errors after your big medical error. Yeah, it's been a series of catastrophic events. It has. So how have you managed to get through this with your sanity intact? I think life prepared me for this. Um, I've just gotten used to hardship and basically it's okay this is what we're doing now all right i mean just this year alone my son passed away suddenly of cancer in august and a week later my husband deployed to iraq you absorb things like that and go on so it sounds like there's a certain level of acceptance well you realize you can't fight everything sometimes the situation just is what it is yeah, that is a lot of loss and grief 
and trauma to have to process all in a very short period of time, not even mentioning what's happening globally now with COVID. That's just another layer right. of anxiety. Yeah, it's especially hard on the military families because we can't have our loved one with us. We're a world away. Yeah. So how are you coping? Because I, I, all of the other people may not have experienced as, you know, catastrophic events as you have had, but from your ability to survive through this, there are things that others can learn from you. I have my, I want to throw things at a wall day. You know, I, I get very angry at times. Most of the time I try not to dwell on it. It's the situation is what it is. And if you sit down and obsess about it, you just get all bound up. I'm not a superhero. I'm not, uh, I'm not, you know, somebody that I think is, my husband thinks I'm the strongest person he's ever met. And I guess coming from fellow who was a Marine, that's a big deal, but I just don't see it that way. I just do what I do because nobody's told me I don't have to do it. Well, it's, uh, really incredible to hear that you've gone through this that you're surviving this and it's really horrific to think that you're going to have these side effects from these multiple medical errors as you move forward it's disturbing and i ended up staying in west virginia i was hoping to be able to move to pennsylvania but that didn't happen so i have to continue to deal with this health care and what do you hope for your future? To survive it. For the future, I hope my husband comes back and we can retire and that I'll have a relatively long life despite all of this. When do you expect him back? That's up in the air now. Uh, DFAS has shut down all of the travel because of the COVID. DFAS? Def Department of Defense. I'm sorry, not defense, uh, DFAS, it's DOD. Okay. I don't uh, even know my military acronyms of my show. Originally, it was somewhere around October, but now we're not sure because the timetable's been disrupted. So if there was one thing that you could change about the way the healthcare system works, what would it be? I think more of the excessive errors. I mean, they don't have to report every patient who got mad at a doctor because they didn't like something, but excessive errors, there should be some point where they say, okay, this should be made available to the patients. How can you make an informed decision if you don't have all the facts? There needs to be some sort of public uh, database where people can access it to find out about previous medical errors, the history of physicians. Or at least, at least a reporting agency or something. Um, when I did the research, I found that 49 states in this country, uh, the U.S., have a reporting agency of some type that tracks excessive errors and sees to it that something is done to address the issues that it. One state has nothing. 
It's a completely voluntary system. They're left to police themselves. And <laughs> guess which state I live in? So that's the West Virginia? Mm-hmm. It kind of goes away towards explaining how this could have happened. Right. There's no accountability. No. I really don't think there's any accountability. They are they're locked into the cap so they know just how much any error will cost them wow that is just so frightening to think that sort of the way they're framing the work they do is to build there's this built-in knowledge that any error they make there's only going to be a cap on how much it's going to impact exactly. their profit yeah, I really believe that catastrophic errors or never events, which are such grievous errors, they should never happen in modern medicine. Never events should be exempt from the caps. It has to start somewhere as far as making them accountable. And so is there any advocacy going on in West Virginia around that? There was, but I don't know that there's anything going on now. I've reached out to a few congressmen and a few politicians, but everybody's involved in the COVID thing right now. So I don't expect to hear anything anytime soon. Exactly. I did try to contact our local news station, but never got a response. In this state, it is not required by any agency that they explain what happened. So I'll never get an explanation. I just have to make peace with this and go on with the rest of my life. And they never have to actually show to any reporting agency or anybody in authority that they address the problems that caused it. And uh, I guess as far as going on, the one thing I wanted to say is I, I'm planning to get a Phoenix tattoo because I thought it was appropriate. I don't want to have to look at the scar, and I survived it and came back, so. Oh, so you're going to get the phoenix over top of the over scar? Over the scar, yes. That seems very fitting and meaningful. It does to me. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's uh, really shocking to hear. Um, thank you. Well, once again, we hear how the legal and medical systems are set up so that accountability and learning from our mistakes takes the backseat to profits. It is sobering to hear these stories of how our medical systems work and don't work, and how they deny, cover up, and defend wrongdoings. During this time of the COVID pandemic, a paradigm shift in healthcare may be afoot. Hopefully, the shift includes increased transparency, accountability, and the capacity for oversight to increase patient safety. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. 
If you're in need of the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error or for living with chronic complex illness or LGBT issues or any of life's challenges, especially in this crazy COVID world, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others.